Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Rainey. Today, we talk with Dr. Angela Parker, Assistant Professor at the University of Denver. Angela is an enrolled member of the Mandan and Hidatsa tribes of the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation, and on her dad's side is Cree from Rocky Boy, Montana. Angela is a historian whose forthcoming book covers the history of oil and gas development on Native American reservations. In today's conversation, she'll share with us the complex impacts that this development has had on communities in North Dakota, Oklahoma, and elsewhere. We'll talk about the present day, and we'll talk about the past, including the new film Killers of the Flower Moon, which depicts a series of murders of Osage people in the early 1900s. Today's conversation is a little longer than usual, but trust me, it's worth every minute. Stay with us. Angela Parker from the University of Denver. Welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you. So we're really pleased to have you, Angela, on the show. I've been meaning to get you on the show ever since I met you um, almost a year ago in southwestern Colorado at the Southern Ute Indian Reservation. Um so um, we're really thrilled to have you here. Um, we always ask our guests how they got interested in environmental and energy-related topics when we have them on the show. So what sort of like inspired you to work on uh, issues related to energy development? Sure. Um, so I'm sort of notoriously short-sighted, I feel like, um, <laughs> which is weird for a historian. Um, so I probably wasn't super focused on environmental issues until the 2000s. And it was when I was in grad school and I was going home uh, to Fort Berthold as much as possible. And then the Bakken oil boom hit. And so the process of seeing just the entire landscape change as a result of extraction, um, it was really dystopian. <laughs> And it brought home the realities of extraction and, um, you know, sort of the inequities in our energy economy um, directly to me for the first time. Before that, I'd been sort of this typical American who thought of oil extraction that as something that happened elsewhere, right? Like, you know, outside of the bounds of the U.S. or in deepest, darkest Alaska. <laughs> and <laughs> so for the first time being confronted with sort of like that reality of extraction um, made me think a lot more deeply than I had before about how we're treating our planet in, in sort of a visceral way. Yeah. That's really interesting. And the, the sort of dystopian landscape I think was particularly pronounced in the Bakken in the early days because of all the flaring that was going on there. So like at night, you know, there was like, constant orange haze in the sky, right? Yeah. And it's very water intensive. Fracking is very water intensive. And so if you don't have, um, you know, like a pipeline or easy access to water, you're basically hauling water in on trucks um, to, you know, act as part of the fracking fluid. And then um, you're hauling wastewater out uh, to take it to someplace else to dispose of it, probably unsafely <laughs> in the long run. And, uh, you know, then of course there's just the oil tankers, the oil trucks. Um, so 
the the roads, the sort of methods of transportation were clogged. Um, you had definitely the flares, um, sort of the industrial lights of the derricks. I mean, the flares and the derricks are still there, um, but they've managed uh, different transportation systems for the water. So um, the the trucking isn't as prevalent anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being in the Bakken as well in the early days and spent less time there than you did, I'm sure. But, um, but yeah, the truck traffic is sticks in my mind. Um, and you know, the number of accidents too, that was, that's, you know, uh, still an important issue. Well, I'm sure we could talk about just this one experience of uh, Ford Berthold uh, oil extraction for more than half an hour. But uh, we want to talk to you today about a sort of broader scope of energy development and particularly oil development on Native American reservations and how it's affected Native American peoples um, over the years. Um, so, you know, I'm guessing that when a lot of people think about Native Americans and oil, some of the first thoughts that come to mind are like pipelines, like the Dakota Access Pipeline or Line 3 or Line 5 or other sort of high-profile cases. Um, but oil and gas production is quite significant across a, a number of Native nations. So I'm wondering if you can just start us off by giving us a sense of how widespread oil and gas production is across different tribal nations inside of the United States. Yeah, sure. Um, so overall, right now in the U.S., there's about... 575 or something in that range, uh, federally recognized tribes. Um, and then, um, some tribes share reservations. Um, so there's about 300 or so reservations. Um, and so the tribes that are currently producing significant oil, um, there's maybe only like, a dozen. Um, and so some are historically large producers, um, such as Osage. Um, and Fort Berthold is really um, the the sort of big mover, the, the sort of giant amongst these dozen or so tribes that have significant resources. Um, but the rest of them tend to be scattered across um, the plains. So like Wind River and, um, you know, high plains tribes, I guess maybe mountainous tribes, uh, like the Utes, um, Blackfeet, that type of thing. And then there's a number of tribes in Oklahoma that historically have had and continue to have, um, some level of, of oil production aside from the Osage. So like the Creek, you know, the Cherokee, Southern Cheyenne, Arapaho. Um, and a lot of times it's these tribes in particular that, um, you know, have access to these oil resources um, because they're over, you know, huge formations. So the Osage formation is, you know, sort of famously rich, right? Um, but what's happening now uh, is that with fracking and with the accessibility of um, shale plays, tribes that previously weren't necessarily targeted or um, weren't necessarily developing uh, their oil resources, they have the potential and there is the likelihood that they will be developing their shale formations um, in the near future. 
And so it expands the number of tribes a little bit to be a, a few more tribes. Um, but yeah, uh, overall, I think the last number I saw was that um, tribal lands are producing about 3% of domestic production. Um, but tribes are sitting over um, the the largest sort of untapped reserves of oil. Mm. Okay, great. So that's a, that's a really great place to start to sort of giving us a little bit of sense of scale. Um, and, you know, you mentioned earlier some of the the downsides of oil and gas development, and, you know, they, of course, are significant, um, but there are also upsides. Um, so can you talk a little bit about for the Native nations that host oil and gas development today, what are some of those, you know, really big downsides and, and the upsides that community members in particular might experience? Sure. Um, so let's start with the upsides. <laughs> and I mean, I just, I need to probably start off by saying that as a historian, I am allergic to generalizations. <laughs> like we are famously very picky about giving the exact context and makes us very tiresome dinner guests. <laughs> um, but uh, it really is different every place you go. Um, I would say overall, the benefits are um, like if you go to a place like Southern U and you are able to see how they've um, allocated, right, their their oil income to creating like this beautiful cultural center and museum, right? Or, um, you know, this huge casino. Um, and you, you get a sense when you visit Southern Ute that this is a well-resourced community and they're allocating the oil revenues into the things that matter, like education, you know, social services for um, elders, right? So there's the potential for oil income to be spent to um, take care of, you know, these sort of most urgent community needs. Um, and I think that's sort of the benefit. I mean, like, you know, up at Fort Berthel now, we have a beautiful, like, cultural center, um, and there's just more resources. So I think that's one of the biggest benefits. Um, the other you know, sort of benefit, and this is much more case by case, is because of the history of allotment of tribal lands, some people are able to um, have a huge income, um, you know, off of their oil royalties, that they, you know, these are people who struggled and lived in poverty and worked, you know, pretty much every day of their life. Um but because of societal forces and sort of um, the structures of inequity in the United States, you know, we're likely never going to be able to, um, you know, even retire in some cases, right? And so for elders in particular, um, who are able to, um, you know, have a generous income every month. I I think most people in most communities are really, um, you know, happy to see these people who 
previously, you know, were excluded really from economic privilege, being able to access it. Um, so I think those are some of the good sides. Um, I think one of the bigger downsides is that um, anytime you have wealth flowing into a community at the level um, that has happened, you know, with the Bakken oil boom um, or with any sort of like per capita disbursements that tribes are able to do, um, you know, you get people who prey on, um, you know, community members. And so at Fort Berthold, we've seen a huge increase in the amount of um, serious um, life-threatening drug use. Um, And there have been, uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, some major drug cartels that have been targeted and disrupted only to have you know, sort of the, the inflow began yet again. And so it puts a place that previously was very remote and, you know, where nobody really cared about going, <laughs> um, in the, the center, sort of the nexus of a lot of dangerous criminal activity and, um, you know, people want um, you know, Fort Berthold tribal members to be addicted and to stay addicted to really terrible drugs like, you know, heroin, fentanyl, um, you know, all sorts of opioids really. And so, you know, as soon as the money flows in, in some cases, it's flowing back out in this, um, sort of black market economy. Yeah. And, and we're going to, sort of come back to that theme of kind of outsiders preying on the wealth that can be generated uh, when we talk about the Osage um, in a little bit. But, um, you know, one other question that um, that I'm really curious about, and again, I'm going to ask you to generalize and you should feel free to reject <laughs> my, my request. Um, but, you know, what's your sense of either on the Fort Berthold Reservation or other reservations where you've done work? Um, about how community members perceive the presence of the industry. Like, is there a lot of support for the industry? Is there a lot of opposition? Is there a complex mix of attitudes? What do you observe? I would say there's a complex mix. And I think um, my guess is that most people who knew Fort Berthold before uh, the Bakken you know, boomed. Um, my guess is in a lot of ways they might miss what we had before, which was, you know, being able to see every star in the sky at night and to not have to worry about air quality due to flaring or not worrying and wondering about water quality in the Missouri and, um, in the the reservoir, um, Lake Sagagawea. And, I mean, it was an under-resourced community, but it was maybe closer. Um, I was talking about this with 
a few people not from Fort Berthold. <laughs> um, it was actually a group of Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho singers that we were hosting on campus and we were laughing because um, there was this moment, right, when I was a kid and that was, I was born in 76. So this is like late seventies, early eighties where, you know, the entire powwow practically felt like it was in Hidatsa and everyone was talking Hidatsa. And like, as a kid, I was like, oh, why do they have to talk Hidatsa? I don't understand what they're saying. I'm so bored, right? Because again, notoriously short-sighted. <laughs> um, and it's just very different now, like community gatherings. Um, they're really focused on, um, you know, not necessarily our tribal community, but on being able to to welcome guests from a much wider, you know, portion of Native America. And there is something that was really precious about um, that moment, right, before money was able to flow in so quickly and so overwhelmingly. And um, it's not gone, but it's just not as prevalent, I would say, like in those public spaces, in those community spaces. You know, I'm saying all of this as somebody who is sort of more of a visitor to Fort Berthold. Like I haven't lived at home since I was in my 20s. And so, you know, someone who lives there is going to have a very different experience. And, um, you know, that that's really the experience that we should be centering um, when we think about these issues. Um, but I do think, like, with as much loss, there is a sort of community ethos that we don't judge, I guess, sort of the decisions that other people make, right? So, I mean, nobody's judging people for, you know, signing um, a lease, right, to, to frack on their land, um, nobody's judging people for um, benefiting from oil royalties um, and or for working in the oil fields because a lot of um, young men and women, you know, to make fast money um, and to make a lot of money, right? Like they'll be working um, in the sector. So I think most people are just very careful um, to you know, respect the decisions that, that other tribal members are making, um, like on a personal level, I think on the institutional level, when we think about, um, you know, tribal politics, that may be a little bit different. Um, there's a lot of critique that's aimed at our political leaders. Um, some of it is warranted and some of it is, you know, mostly emerging from the fact that there might be a lack of information that's being conveyed, not necessarily a critique based in reality. Um, but the lack of transparency um, in a lot of, um, you know, economies where there is a lot of oil money flowing in um, can lead to rumor and so those rumors sort of get bigger and get passed around the community um, and can make people feel, I guess, sort of 
um, very cynical about tribal government. Mm. Yeah, that's that's also interesting. So we've been talking for the last few minutes about the current day uh, and primarily about uh, the Fort Berthold Reservation. Um, but I'd love for us to go back in history a little bit and talk about some previous eras of oil development or oil and gas development. Can you talk a little bit about some of the first examples of oil development taking place on reservations and, and some of the effects that those activities had on community members uh, at that time? Sure. Um, the project that I'm working on now, as I put my first uh, book project sort of to bed, I guess, um, is looking at uh, oil extraction in Native American communities over the quote-unquote long 20th century, which basically just means a little bit before and a little bit after the actual 20th century. So my first chapter is focusing on um, the Creek and the Osage, um, because these are both communities that had massive oil booms early in the 20th century. And um, it also came at this time of intense conflict over land use and allotment, um, and, as well as this sort of moment when Oklahoma was forcing its way to statehood and really forcing communities in Oklahoma to to open up their lands to non-natives in terms of like these land rushes, right? And it's actually a very similar story <laughs> to what I was talking about in terms of Fort Berthold. I mean, some of the particulars have changed, um, but, you know, the, the basic outline is, uh, you know, oil boom, you know, sort of rapid rise and shift in the lived environment um, and this quick transition of being able to translate the extracted oil into um, massive sort of previously unimaginable wealth, right? And with that wealth came a whole host of bad actors who um, wanted to sort of ensure that they would get their quote unquote, their cut. Right. Um, and so they would prey on, um, tribal members who were particularly vulnerable. Um, this took a lot of different formats, right? And so what I want to sort of emphasize is that there was outright murder and violence, like what happened with the Osage oil murders. Um, but there was also a more insidious institutional violence that was also happening. Um, so, um, the Osage in particular were a very unique case because early on um, their leadership had advocated for the, if um, allotment was going to be pushed through on their reservation, um, that the surface rights could be allotted, but the subsurface rights would remain in common. Right. And Angela, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but can you, for people who don't know the history of allotment, um, can you give us like a, a real quick primer on what, what that term means in this context? Sure. So at this point in U.S. history, when allotment was sort of first pushed through in the late 1880s, um, and then it sort of began to unfold over time, um, over really sort of the next three decades, 
in sort of case by case situations um, in Native America. Um, assimilation efforts were seen as the humane alternative to extermination. Um, so the U.S. was exiting this time period in which, you know, you had people like John Chivington or Kit Carson or um, other sort of uh, military leaders attempting to eradicate Native people, right? And um, once, you know, the, the reservation era hit, once it was clear that territorial expansion was succeeding, um, you know, the U.S. government and especially uh, politicians and leaders and sort of reformers from out east um, wanted to uh, offer assimilation and sort of the eradication of tribal cultures as a viable alternative to um, killing us all off. So um, when arm of this was, you know, like the boarding school system, but another arm and perhaps the most successful arm of the, this move towards assimilation was to break up the, the tribal land base, the, the land base that tribes continued to hold in common. And the idea was that if we, um, you know, parcel out tribal lands to each, you know, member of the tribe, who was alive at that moment and, you know, to, to sort of allocate out to a lot out 160 acres or 80 acres at a time um, that the move from being a, a person who um, understood lands as held in common and, you know, sort of like negotiated within the tribe um, under common use uh, to being like an individual landowner would help with assimilation and sort of move native people along the so-called path to civilization. Um, so that was the hope. And I mean, honestly, allotment did a huge amount, um, not necessarily to ensure assimilation, but definitely to ensure further erosion of the tribal land base. So from the beginning of allotment, to when it officially ended in 1934 with the Indian Reorganization Act, um, an additional two-thirds of the tribal land base had been lost due to allotment. Um, some of it was by people selling off their allotments if they, you know, were really hard up or in poverty and needed money. Um, but typically after allotment happened and after every tribal member was allotted out under these sort of more individual tribal-specific allotment acts, they would then consider the rest of the tribal land base to be available <laughs> to non-natives. And so then they would have these sort of like mini land rushes where they would sell uh, tribal land that had been negotiated uh, as reserved for this tribe by treaty. They would open it up to non-natives at sort of dirt cheap prices. Yeah, right. And both of those factors leading to you know, very significant loss of land. So, Angela, before I rudely interrupted you, you were you were saying that that during that allotment process, the tribal leadership ensured that even if surface parcels were allotted, the mineral estates where the oil wealth existed would remain intact. Is that right? Yeah, and and this is unique to the Osage. And um, what happened as a result of that is that. 
because the subsurface rights were held in common um, in order to sort of disseminate or disperse, I guess, oil royalties that came um, as a result of extraction amongst the Osage. Um, they created this system called the headright system. And so each uh, tribal member, um, I think it was who was on the sort of like original roles um, of the tribe, they were each assigned like a, a an equal uh, percentage of any oil revenue that, that the tribe would be able to get. And so these headrights could, you know, run to the thousands of dollars, which, you know, in uh, 1910, I mean, it really started to pick up though. Um, there was sort of like this second like boom um, in the late 19 teens, um, probably as a result of World War One, but um, these headrights, you know, in today's dollars could be the equivalent of, you know, like $500,000 of passive income a year, right? Um, and so, you know, what happened amongst the Osage is you had these sociopaths, essentially, um, deciding that they were going to try to consolidate the headrights through a combination of marriage to, you know, one person who could hold head rights, um, and then murder of, um, family members of that person that, that was sort of married to a non-native. And so it was this huge scheme to try to consolidate as much, um, economic benefit from the Osage as possible. Um, the same thing was happening, um, amongst other, Oklahoma tribes that were experiencing similar oil booms during the same time period. Um, but with all of the tribes in Oklahoma, the, the more administrative or, or sort of institutional violence would occur through guardianships. So during this time period, native people weren't considered competent to manage their own affairs, um, especially if they had a higher blood quantum. So if they were full blood or, if English was their second language, um, if they hadn't gone to boarding school, that type of thing. And so um, throughout Oklahoma, um, there was a system of assigning guardianship to um, Native people. And the the guardianship would be assigned to, to non-Native community members, um, usually white community members. And those people would have um, complete control over any of the the oil revenue that came in um, for, you know, the tribal individual. And I mean, there's like really egregious cases where, you know, um, this one woman in Oklahoma who ended up becoming somewhat of a reformer, you know, was visiting um, Creek communities and she found these three children who were essentially living in like this hollowed out log um, just, you know, no one to care for them. And she began to investigate and to try to figure out like, you know, why, why is nobody taking care of these children? It turned out they were orphans and had been assigned a, um, guardian, a non-native guardian, but the non-native guardian was essentially letting these children, you know, live out in the wild with absolutely no actual care, um, while collecting and using, um, the royalties that were coming into their, um, accounts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and many 
similar stories, I'm sure, that um, would trouble, you know, any right-thinking person, any person with a heart, you know, just just such um, powerful stories and, and troubling stories. I'm really glad that you're sharing them with us. Um, and I'm really not glad that we're running a little long. And um, so I'm going to need to uh, close us out in just a second. Um, but before I ask you to recommend something, um, uh, I do want to ask about the new movie, um, the new Martin Scorsese movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is about um, you know these murders uh, on the Osage Reservation that we've briefly talked about. So we don't have a lot of time, so I hope you can be really brief with this. But um, uh, are you planning on seeing the movie? If so, what are you going to be watching for? Yeah, I'm definitely planning on seeing it. Um, I will be watching for how Scorsese and DiCaprio handle the sort of humanization of sociopathy. <laughs> um, so I think I think the most troubling part of it, right? Like, this is what I'm excited for. I'm excited for this recreation of Osage life, um, you know, sort of right after the turn of the 20th century. Um, I think that's going to be fascinating and amazing. And I think the amount of historical detail that they went into, like in terms of clothing and, um, you know, physical places is going to be amazing. Um, and for sort of like the native side of the story, I guess, I'm I'm super excited. And then there's a part of me that is, um, you know, Ernest Burkhart was a sociopath and... <laughs> Um, William Hale was a sociopath and it is troubling um, to see these people who were extremely violent and measured right in their violence um, to be the sort of the central tragic, um, you know, sort of conflicted characters. And so I think I'm going to have a lot of opinions, but I am looking forward to it. And I think DiCaprio is a great actor. You know, Scorsese is an, you know, obviously just cultural touchstone. So it'll be, it'll be a good, a good viewing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I've actually already seen it um, and um, found it quite powerful. And um, I think there's actually a couple of ways to interpret the sort of humanization of uh, of these you know awful men one way that i thought about it was as you say like kind of troubling that they are being humanized and portrayed as complex rich characters and then the other side that i thought about was maybe scorsese is manipulating us and sort of showing us uh us and and by us i mean a white audience that you know by sympathizing with these people who were really monsters we are sort of illustrating our own complicity uh, in this history of violence. Um, and so that those were the sort of two ways of thinking about it that I came out of. And um, I don't know which one is right, but, you know, neither one is really right, probably. But those are a couple yeah, of options I have. I hope, I hope the second option is really what – I hope Scorsese is that complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Who knows? Anyway, Angela, this has been – an amazing conversation. I, I wish we could talk for longer, and I know that we will in other forums. Um, but um, before we close out, we always ask our guests to recommend something that they think is really great, that they think our listeners would enjoy. So what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? So I think if people want to know more about oil and just like 
the long 20th century history of oil. There is a super problematic documentary that is available on YouTube, but it gives you the bare bones of what you need to know about oil and the 20th century and how essential it's been um, in understanding 20th century history. And it's, of course, the prize. So if you just like go on YouTube and search for the prize and if you watch it, you will get a completely new and, in my opinion, more accurate understanding of 20th century history um, than anything that is currently in, you know, textbooks. And the benefit is that you don't have to read his like 800 page book. <laughs> and I mean, you know, it's problematic because it doesn't, it, it, it sort of lionizes industry, right? And it sort of lionizes, oh, these great movers and shakers, you know, these men of industry. But it still holds up as a really important sort of spine to understand, um, like U.S. foreign policy in particular, um, but especially like amongst, um, you know, the quote unquote developed world, like why certain moves were being made at, at specific times in history. Um, so I think that's a super valuable teaching tool. And other than that, I'm actually um, <laughs> binging this show on Netflix called Sex Education. <laughs> it has nothing to do with extraction or oil, but it has a lot to do with like, I don't know, how we treat each other as human beings and, um, you know, around this like central idea of sex and intimacy um, amongst youth. So that's like kind of the only media that I'm super excited about watching right now. Oh, except for Reservation Dogs. I'm so sad that we are at the end of that journey. And I mean, the entire series has made me like, cry and laugh and it it hits you especially as a native person I feel like it hits you at these moments that you're not really expecting and it's really beautiful because it forces you to like connect with your emotions and connect with like some of the trauma that you know that has been circulating in our communities and yeah those guys did a great job I'm like if anybody has not watched Reservation Dogs please go watch it. Watch all three seasons. I think it's amazing. Yeah. Well, Angela Parker from the University of Denver, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your work with us. Uh, we're really looking uh, forward to seeing your book in the future and, and learning more from that. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals.
Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.